From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory, your weekly download on how to untangle healthcare's biggest challenges. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. At the end of June, around 300 health leaders gathered at Advisory Board's Value-Based Care Summit. And together, we had one goal, to make sure the next 10 years of value-based care is more impactful than the last. And as part of that event, the radio advisory team organized a live podcast reporting. I brought together three renowned leaders, all at the helm of very different organizations, but all with a shared goal to build a value-based enterprise. We talked about how different organizations define success in that goal, what capabilities or assets organizations have to have and own in order to succeed, and why ownership and steerage are not actually the same thing. If you didn't catch that conversation live, don't worry. We, of course, recorded it, and we are releasing it on the radio advisory feed today. So here is my conversation with Rob Mayer, Senior Vice President and GM of Optum Insight Clinical Solutions. Lori Sikaros, Chief Strategy Officer at Memorial Care Health System. And Rushika Fernanda-Pule, Co-Founder and former CEO of Iora Health. Thank you. I want to let our audience and our attendees, our listeners at home, in on a couple of secrets. (laughs) So secret number one is we've been planning the session for a long time, and it's actually evolved quite a bit. So if you signed up for the Value-Based Care Summit several months ago, you may have seen that we had a different title for this session. We were still focused on this idea of consolidation, value-based enterprises, but at the time, we were really talking about the buy-build partner decision. While we started getting into the details, I started talking with my panelists, and they said, Ray, it is not that easy. Because all of you are buying and building and partnering. So here's my goal for our time together. First, I want us to get a little bit deeper. I want us to actually talk about strategy. I want us to talk about operations. But I'm going to do my best to thread the needle of getting to that detail for a question that's actually a lot more philosophical which is what does it take to build a value-based enterprise? So that's secret number one. Secret number two is how this process normally works when I'm recording radio advisory episodes. So the vast majority of the episodes that I record are done at home. I'm not wearing this. (laughs) I'm in my sweatpants in a pillow fort that I build once a week so that there's good audio quality. But the one thing that I do every time and that I'm going to do today is we start off with an icebreaker. And there's two reasons for that. Reason number one is very technical. We need to do a sound check, right? We need to make sure that everyone's audio is coming in appropriately so that it works well for the podcast feed later. But the other reason is for me as the facilitator, I don't want this to feel like an interview. I want my guests to feel comfortable. And I use that icebreaker to get us in a place of kind of calm and comfort. I often say, I want radio advisory episodes to feel like we're sitting on the floor of my living room. There are a lot more people in my living room today, (laughs) but we're still going to try to make that happen. So my panelists don't know what I'm going to ask them. It's not about healthcare. I want us to get to a place of honesty, transparency, vulnerability. So I want you to admit for us. Oh, God. (laughs) What movie 
might you be embarrassed to share that you have never seen? Or maybe you're actually proud of this, proud to say that, oh, everyone's seen that movie. It's never seen it, never going to see it. Oh. I've never seen any of the Harry Potters. Oh, oh no. I know. Are you going to see the new one? They're making a new series. Are you going to see the new one? Probably not. <laughs> I think mine's the Godfather series. You know, I love... Oh. I know. Oh. I've already lost oh. the audience. I've already lost Rob, the audience. I've also never seen the Godfather. And I've seen every other, like, mafia mob-related movie, but I've never seen the Godfather. I know. I know. I've seen, I've seen the important clips. I know the references, Correct. but... Yeah. I'll watch it on the way home, I promise. <laughs> We were uh, recently in Seneca Falls, New York, and I realized I'd never seen It's a Wonderful Life. Mm. Oh. Wow. They had a little It's a Wonderful Life museum, and when we walked by, I was like, wow, I've actually never seen this movie. Oh, my God, you have homework, <laughs> too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right, well, hopefully we're all feeling willing to share the, the, the details of our organizations and our, and our thoughts and opinions here, but I, I do want to actually get into the content, although we can maybe do another podcast where we're just talking about movies. movies yeah. So there's a lot of buzzwords in healthcare, and value-based care is absolutely one of them. I am positive that you have experienced a moment with a colleague, with a competitor, with someone at a conference, where they have said the following statement, I do value. (laughs) We all know that that doesn't mean anything. So I want to make sure that when we have this conversation, we're using a shared language. And I already use this phrase, value-based enterprise. So when it comes to each of your organizations, Iora, Memorial Care, Optum, or the larger UHG enterprise... What does it mean to build a value-based enterprise? Rob, let's start with you. I think you're spot on, first of all, the use of the term. I mean, it's become, it's been a buzzword, but it feels like it's back and better than ever, and maybe an exciting time to keep working in value-based care. I see a deck or a slide or a presentation almost every week where someone uses it. They want more of it. They need it. They're doing it. They're the best at it. They don't have problems with it. It's in a sales it. pitch. It's in a sale. Right, it's, in everyone's, it's on everyone's website. And I always love to have the follow-up question of what do, you, what do you mean by that? What do you need more of? What are you doing well of? What do you think you're not good at? Because the answer is almost always different. The fundamental theme is the same, but what they're actually trying to take credit for or get done is different. And so I think very simply, and this won't be hopefully news to anyone in this room because we're in a room of experts, I think it's a payment model between payers and providers tied to outcomes, managing total cost of care and the revenue side of risk adjustment or quality. And I think it's centered around having quality metrics to make sure it's quality of care, not denial of care. And I think fundamentally how you do that and the different variations are all the different flavors you start to see. But that's my simple definition. So we have a mantra at Memorial Care. It's right care, right time, and right place. And so that's easy to execute with the thousands of people across the system. But it also, for us, it means having a high-value, clinically astute network and putting that network together that has the incentives that are aligned. Otherwise, you get into those conversations about why am I not getting all the knee surgeries in the hospital and why am I not getting... And so we've been doing it for a long time, and we're an odd organization, I've been told by many, because we, we leave money on the table every day because we choose to deliver a value to our members, and it's important to us. So I think it's actually very profound, and I think it's hard when you try and futz around the edges. That It really is about the what you think your job is when you walk in in the morning. And I think, unfortunately, despite what mission statements say, for too many people in healthcare, you think your job is do more stuff to people. So more visits, more hospital beds filled, more MRIs, more 
drugs sold, etc. And and by the way, that's not the job that I want to do. It's not why I went into this. It's not why I think we all went into this. The only way to actually add value in healthcare, the thing that our customers, who are the patients, by the way, no one else, is they want to be healthier and lead better lives. So value-based care is all about your job to be done is to improve people's health, to take a population of people to know who they are and improve their health and keep them out of trouble and give them the right care when they need it and not the care they don't need or want. And I, unfortunately, that's not very common in our U.S. healthcare system. It's a humbling conversation for me every time I try to talk to friends or family members <laughs> that don't work in healthcare. And when I talk about working in value-based care and you explain it, I'm sure other people in this room have had this moment, the realization on their face of that's not what you do already. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's what they thought they were paying for. And it's like, well, oh, no. Like, and then you try to backpedal. Like, well, we are, but we're trying in it. But it is the passion, I think, for me of driving towards just what the average consumer expects from this industry. But yet we know we are so far away from in certain ways. Certainly resonates when you talk to someone who doesn't sit in this industry and you talk about this topic. So we had, we had a CFO, uh, Jim Nolan, from Atlantic Care he worked with, and what he said was very profound. He said, I no longer want to be in a business where my interests and those of my customers are opposed to each other. Right. right? I want to be a business where my interests and those of my customers are aligned. That has to be value-based care. And you're, you're getting to how complicated things are and how complicated the incentives often are at getting this right. And I will say that, Rob and Lori, you're kind of burdened by working for an organization that's existed for a long time and has been on this path for a long time. Rashika, you have a unique kind of space here because you decided, I'm building from scratch. What was your kind of one-sentence strategy that you held sacred in getting to that vision of what value-based care is? What did the how kind of mean for you in building Iora? I'll start with the why, actually, because, you know, Simon Sinek would say we have to always start with the why. And it's this is the way I want to practice care. I don't want to be doing more stuff to people. I want to actually improve people's health and keep them out of trouble. And so we said, what does it look like if we built a system where this is all we do? And it starts, I think you mentioned, Rob, by getting the right payment. I think if you don't have the right payment model, it is a waste of time. And we see all these people trying to do value-based care, but with a fee-for-service payment model, and they lose their shirts, right? It's a really bad idea, right? So the first thing you've got to do is insist on, and so we only take value-based payments. We can talk a lot about what that means, but only do that. Second is we then say we have to build a delivery model, a clinical model that's geared toward doing this. And by the way, that's not a little different than the current fee-for-service model. It's completely different. So by the way, the only fool's errand is what many of you are doing probably, which is trying to do both in the same place at the same time. That is really hard. And then the third, maybe we'll come into the conversation about technology, you have to ask, what's the technology platform I need in order to enable that? And unfortunately, no offense, I met someone at Epic at breakfast, it's not Epic, right? <laughs> or not the current version of Epic, right? Because it's built as a transactional engine to optimize fee-for-service billing, not manage populations and manage teams and outcomes and the like. So, and then it's a culture thing, right? If you take the four layers. It's you need a culture that's aligned to this. And we had the luxury of saying, what if we built all that from scratch? Yes. And that's what we did. So the, the, the payment model, the clinical model, the technology, the culture. Yes. My question for then Lori and Rob is, how would you know if your organization or someone else's has made it, has, has actually built a value-based enterprise? 
for us, it would be the patient getting what they need when they need it, and really nothing more, nothing less. You know, getting that, no bounce backs, no none of that. But an untimely mat, they're navigated through their care. I'll answer it in two ways. I think a when it's repeatable, scalable, both sides see value in it. You can forecast around it, and I like to think there's a member element to that, right? I would like to think members starting to see cost sharing from it, and most importantly, starting to see the health plan, the provider work in conjunction (laughs) to enable better care for them. And so I think, in theory, looking at all those elements. For Optum, and UHG is a large organization, I can't speak for everyone, but our, our strategy and our thinking on this is evolving, of what we maybe have historically done, and now what we need to go do to meet what the industry is kind of putting in front of us, which is there is not one way of doing value-based care. There are many ways of value-based care. And so our one sentence to answer the question you asked Rashika would be, meet the provider where they are. Mm-hmm. And I think saying that's one thing, but then creating the set of solutions and services to do that is what the journey we're on. I want to keep going down this path of the things that you need in order to be successful, right? Rashika started us off by talking about four different categories. And over the course of the summit, we've talked about a lot of things, right? We've talked about, uh, we've talked about home-based care. We've talked about Medicare Advantage. We've talked about behavioral health. We've talked a lot about primary care. And I'm going to ask this question to my panelists in a moment. But first, I actually want to get our audience involved. So I want everyone to take out their phones. We are going to launch a word cloud. And I want you to respond to this question. What are the things, what are the essential assets or capabilities that organizations need to succeed in value-based care, to succeed in meaningful downside risk? Claire's going to read out some of the things that she can see on the app. I've got grit, trust, visionaries, data, technology, commitment, collaboration, Data interoperability, there's a lot of data, data analytics, analytics. So some technical things and some personality traits. I don't know, do you all think that you have grit, confidence, <laughs> vulnerability? What were some of them? Yeah. How about guts? Yeah. Guts. <laughs> yeah. Guts. <laughs> what do you think of those responses? So I'll say, A, I don't disagree with any of them. I think it's interesting how many people brought in the personal aspects of it because I yeah, think that is... surprising. Extremely important, and yet maybe not how I would have answered the question if it had come to me directly. We, yeah, how would you have answered the question? What things do you need? We sat down as an organization enterprise probably about six months ago and had the same debate. We didn't have a fancy word cloud or anyone putting stuff in apps, so we can't take as much credit as you all. But we had the same kind of debate across looking with a sister company that's a health insurance carrier, with a sister company that does a lot of care delivery. And again, knowing the term value-based care is broad, mean many things, And we thought for sure this is going to take multiple days, multiple slides. It will not become the simple conversation to have of what do you ultimately need based on really the axes of of what value-based care can be, line of business-centric, type of provider-centric, level of risk-centric. You need something for each of those, and how do you meet the provider there? A gentleman on my team who's actually in the audience, kind of leading into that meeting, created a single-slide version with some four real categories. And we ultimately left the room with saying these fit every model no matter what you do. And I'll cover them in a second. Anyone wants to see it, we're happy to share it. It's not rocket science. But ultimately what we debated then was it's more about how do you do it, the depth of it, and then who's doing the things on the slide. And the four big categories were around network management and contracting, financial management and operational planning, and then on really the population health programs and risk adjustment, and the fourth being around data, analytics, AI, ML, and workflow. 
And you, we couldn't come up with an argument in theory where you didn't need any of that, even in a model where I'm fishing for the provider, the provider's fishing on their own, or we're helping them to fish. You kind of needed all those things. And how you do it is very different for each model, but ultimately those were kind of the core areas that we thought no matter what kind of value-based care enterprise you're trying to deliver, you needed those elements. Yeah, it's interesting that folks are responding, and I think this is actually important with a lot of the personal, right? You need the grit, the leadership. I'm seeing the word trust Folks are responding with exactly what Rashika said, is that you need the, the payment model, right? I see capitation as one of the biggest words. Data interoperability, data commitment. Lori, Rashika, what, what do you think of these responses? I would just add to what Rob said. I would add medical management, care management, and utilization management, and that team in there, because that's a key to your execution and getting that village that surrounds the primary care doctor or the specialist, you know, and getting the patient navigated to where they need to go and augmenting their abilities, their capabilities. So one of the things we're doing differently than I think most people are, what most people do is they sort of leave the doctor and the patient alone and they create all this external stuff, whether it's some external medical management function or whatever. And we just said, maybe that's not the right way to do it. Maybe what we need to do is start actually with the patient and the doctor who are making medical decisions and make sure that they understand what we're trying to do and are with the program. And then what happens is you don't need all this other crap right from the outside. Yeah. You don't need utilization management because the people making the decision are doing the right thing without having some other may I in the background. And by the way, all the data that shows these sort of external things, they don't really work. It's disease management, case management, they're not that effective if you actually look at them rigorously. So the bet we're making, and, and I think it's working, is it's about making everyone understand we're going to do things differently. This is why. So, And I think a lot of people underestimate the patient side, hmm. that there's this deep-seated more is better attitude in healthcare. And you need to really get people to understand that's not true. That doing things that are unnecessary and maybe you don't want is actually potentially harmful to you. And then on the doctor side is how do I practice in a way that's actually congruent with this? And if you can get those two people on board and, and the people around them helping them, then that actually makes it work. You, you just said that people often overlook the patient. And I just want to pause on that for a moment because I think that's a really, really important part of this discussion and our discussion about value-based care in general. Are there other things that you think organizations tend to overlook or maybe even undervalue right, when it, when it comes to the things that you need to be successful here? I keep going back to this why. We, we started with the let's not worry, have our teams worry the little pretty little heads about this and we'll just take care of it up here at the corporate level. And that was exactly wrong. Right. We needed every single person in the organization to understand what we're doing and actually about what the economics look like and why risk adjustment matters and why it matters to send people to the right side of service and why it matters that we do these quality metrics. And, and by the way, if there are quality metrics we disagree with, we say we disagree with those and we're going to ignore them. Right. So get, it's a conversation about getting the organization pulling in the same direction. And, mm. and it has to go with the mm -hmm. why we're doing it. So mm. every, you could walk to any, I, I do this, I walk to almost anyone in the organization, ask them questions about, you know, how the business works and, and, and the right answers, they need to be able to tell you that. Oh yeah, that's always my first red flag. No, that's my second red flag when I travel to physician groups. My first red flag is I say, where do you work? And if they don't name the medical group or the yeah. larger health system, that's, that's my first red flag. <laughs> I think to add on to Rashika's point in your question, the saying, you've seen one provider's office, you've seen one provider's office. Yes. 
And so I think coming from an organization where we like to build large, scalable tools and technologies and services that we think can be you know, adopted by the masses and realizing maybe to solve this problem, it isn't that simple. You need to be able to do that for sure, and you need to be able to have different models to work with doctors, to work with members, to work with IPAs, to work with specialists, to work with urgent care centers, and how do you adapt your technology and your tools and your services and your thinking and your, even your member engagement applications for all those models. We undervalued that, I think, initially and have pivoted greatly now to be more flexible. I, I want to move the conversation to one that's focused on ownership. It's kind of the elephant in the room that I don't want to ignore. And I started off this conversation by saying that one of the big changes that's happened in the last couple of years, last couple of weeks, last few days, uh, is an industry that's increasingly consolidating, right? There are more and more vertical enterprises, all of which include your organizations here. And so I want to kind of lean heavily into this idea of ownership. Rob. <laughs> he owns them all. There is already. one entity on the stage that, that you know, owns a lot of things in, <laughs> in healthcare, right? Okay, so let, let's, go down, let's go down the line. So let's think about Memorial Care is a health system that also has a health plan, right? Iora, if you're not familiar with their kind of story from their creation in, in 2011, right, was then acquired by One Medical, right? And now both of them are part of Amazon. So you've got the benefit of Amazon's pharmacy, also an entity that could probably buy everything if they wanted to. I'm not sure what UHG doesn't own at this point, <laughs> right? So let's name them. The, the health plan, the physician group, uh, Optum Care, that has 60,000 physicians nationwide, the PBM, Optum RX, Optum Insight, right, which is, of course, what you're, you're representing. My question for you as the kind of infamous person on the stage what do you actually need to own? What parts of the industry do you need to own in order to be successful? It's a good question. I understand the question. <laughs> Why are you asking me that? <laughs> I think ultimately, if you go back to my one sentence answer of meet the provider where they are, I think there are providers that are looking to be acquired and, and sold and are ready for risk enablement. And so we need to be able to respond to that. I think it's been a strategy for us and will remain a strategy for us. I think Outside of that, though, there's a lot of opportunity with other types of providers that maybe want to stay independent or want to be assisted in getting, in, getting into value-based care, moving up the curve of value-based care, and so how do we help them? I actually, this might surprise most folks, I don't think you need to own all of it. I do think ownership gives you certain controls and alignment on outcomes, and let's be clear, aligned goals, aligned MBOs, whatever term you use, is a key success factor of value-based care, and I think ownership gives you some of that. But you don't have to have that model, I think, to truly have success in value-based care. And I think we've proven that in some non-ownership models as well with partners and with pilots and with some of the folks in this room, some organizations here, where we've gotten to outcomes and we've not owned everything. We've had external partners, we've had payer and provider partners, and we're all working together to try to get the outcomes. And I think that's been just successful for us. And I think to actually do what we're all trying to do in this industry, we're going to need just as much of that as we do a vertical integration. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Are you looking for ways to harness innovation within your healthcare organization? 
Join us at Advisory Board's Clinical Innovation Summit on August 22nd through the 23rd in Minneapolis to get insight into the core challenges that get in the way of integrating new technologies and tools. Our keynote and interactive sessions will tackle cross-industry conversation, as well as segment-specific takeaways. You'll also get plenty of opportunities to network with fellow healthcare leaders. Learn more about the Clinical Innovation Summit by visiting advisory.com and looking under the Events tab. The three of us started talking about this as we were planning this session. And Rashika, you said something to me when we were first planning. You said very confident. Do you remember what you said? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell you, you yeah. said very confidently to me, Ray, you need two things. Loyalty of consumer and physician hearts and minds. Yeah. I don't disagree, but you also can't buy those things, Right. And we're in this moment where we're talking about ownership and trying to get more control through purchasing of different parts of the system. Yeah, so so again, I think there are a lot of people, particularly the physician part and the consumer part, is simply buying them doesn't get their loyalty. Yes. And there are lots of people. I mean, I think Walgreens and Village MD is a great example. They spend billions of dollars on an organization who I don't think really works for them. Nine, $9 billion. Yeah, whatever the number is, but it's huge. So, so simply buying things doesn't do that. You can, yes, it can help if you've got a common ownership, but you don't necessarily need it. But what you need is the, the patients, the currency in value-based care isn't number of practices or number of markets, it's lives. Yes. Right. And the key to value-based care, as I think we talked about yesterday, it's you need to have those lives loyal to you over time. Because the dirty little secret about value-based care is the first year or two that you get people, you lose your shirt because of the way the coding works and because you're trying to do catch-up care and all sorts of things. So these models are all about consumer retention. The short answer is you can retain people for multiple years. This is a great business. If you have a high churn, it's an awful business. And so you can't buy that, right? The great thing about value-based care is patients can vote with their feet if they don't like it. (laughs) So you need to have those two things. Ownership might be helpful, but it's not necessary. Yeah, and I'm not sure that ownership is actually the right word that we should be using. I think the word that we should be using is control. And I think there are a couple of levers to to getting to that control. Ownership is one that doesn't necessarily hurt. But the, the other industry term is steerage right? Steerage is important in all lines of business, but it's particularly important in value-based care because your goal, like you said, is to impact the trajectory of the patient journey. And you want to make sure that that trajectory gets to better outcomes and lower cost. You might, again, have guessed that I'm a pessimist here. (laughs) The steerage is really, really hard. And no wonder more and more folks are trying to own more parts of the system, own more physicians, where this arms race over physicians right now to impact that steerage, that patient journey. My question, Lori, for you is how much steerage is really possible, especially in a world where you're in a multi-payer environment, you don't have all the assets, you don't have all the control. How does this actually work in practice? What are the barriers along the way? <laughs> I just want to know why you guys don't own hospitals. What's wrong with that? <laughs> you, you are the one person on this stage that is, that is burdened by a hospital. Yes. Yes. So I, I agree that, so we, we call it network integrity and keeping people within the network. It is, we, we've spent plenty of time. The denominator needs to be the same. Our denominator is the same regardless of network. 
you know, regardless of plan, because you've got 10% here, 12% there, 20% over here. And so rather than opening it up to the entire plan network, we have our single denominator, you know, so we have one network that we've deemed as high value and everybody is aligned. So we do our best to keep everybody within that. I know that what Rashika said, but our physicians like working with the team who navigates the patient. So they handhold the patient through their journey to ensure that they get to the right place, and that reduces our leakage or improves our network. And that's integrity. part of the memorial care system. That is that is something that, again, if I come back to the idea of control, you have control over and are trying to handhold this process so you right. can influence the patient journey. Absolutely. And we've gone out of our way to make sure it's not all licensed. So we can hit the total cost of care and we can bring the value and not sending to, oh, this breast center is on license and this, you know, radiology units on license. We, we, we don't do that. But you're not the only ones that are trying to steer patients, right? And I don't, when I say you, <laughs> I don't mean just your kinds of organizations that are even have the same ultimate goal, right? A value-based care. There are all these other players, all these other health plans, all these other health systems, medical groups, employers. There's all these other folks that have their own goal to try to impact, again, the trajectory of the patient. When do they get in the way of the goal that you have to influence that trajectory? So they get in the way all the time, right? So our whole theory of the case is we've seen evidence that we've been doing ACOs, accountable care organizations, for a long time. And I think top-down ACOs have largely not worked. So our bet is really building bottom-up ACOs. So start with the consumer or the patient or the person and get their loyalty and build that relationship. And that's why we are a primary care group by and large, right? Because it's the right lever point to then allow us to get the permission to then help navigate people to the right place, right? But often, so we have, no offense, health plans, disease management companies have these nurses from Idaho calling our patients at night trying to do stuff, and we try our best to get get those people to stand down. Mm -hmm. Because the poor patient gets six different calls from six different nurses, a disease management nurse from the diabetes company, and then Livongo, and like- Even well-intentioned, right? Well-intentioned. No, no, they're largely well-intentioned, but it's actually, we, we have fragmented healthcare by our little stupid silos. So we've got the chatbot companies and the telemedicine companies and the primary care groups and the whatever. And then we fragmented by disease, the diabetes and the hypertension and the CHF. And the dirty little secret is the same patient, it's the same person <laughs> getting all of this, right? So we say we need to organize around the consumer and be their trusted source. And really, once you do that, they will tell all these other people to stand down. I don't need your help. Right. I think I'm missing comment or just to add to this conversation is the data. Do we know who there? <laughs> does everyone know what is the best site of care and the path for that patient or for that doctor? And are we talking to the PCP and informing them and educating them and the member about that? I if I assume positive intent at all the phone calls and we I think we all agree of all the voices that come out in it. But if I assume positive intent, it's because I think they believe they're doing something that might have a better outcome for that member or to, to impact their cost of care or just their health. But if we don't know the actual answers of who is the best oncologist in the area for their version of cancer and how they can go down that care pathway, then ultimately, and you can't tell the PCP that, educate the member, it's hard to also complain when they're getting those phone calls or tell them to do something differently. So I think it sometimes it goes back to, do we have the right information to educate our doctors, to educate our members on what really is the best course for them and the best cost of care, the best quality 
Or, or do we expect them to figure it out on their own? And otherwise, they're going to get all those phone calls, and they'll make their own decisions. I think that's I, what happens. I'm coming to this insight as we're having this conversation. And, and it's really, really important, so I want to make sure I, I articulate it clearly. No one entity can actually own all parts of the healthcare system. Not Amazon, not UHG. And even if they could, you can't control 100% of the total cost of care. Not unless you're going to dramatically limit and and create a closed system. And even then, it's only going to be for the people in that system, right? That's the Kaiser model. So what I'm hearing you all say is that, like it or not, you actually have to work together. That's right. You actually have to partner. And I said I wasn't going to use buzzwords, but I just used a big one, which is partnership. And if I'm honest, I think most folks use the term partnership as a cover. They use it because it feels a lot nicer than what they're actually talking about, which is a transaction and a transaction that requires compromise at best, but probably more likely requires some sacrifice. So as you're working with these entities, whether you're assuming positive intent or otherwise... I want you to name for us a time in which you or they have had to give something up in order to meet this shared industry goal of better outcomes, lower cost. I had a similar conversation unrelated yesterday with someone outside at the happy hour, and it was like, I I don't know if I've ever done a partnership that didn't have compromise. Um, (laughs) I think it's unfortunately it's a key part of it. And I think if both sides don't walk away with a little bit of like, oh, I gave something up here for the greater good of what we're trying to get done, did you actually have a partnership versus you vended somebody and you have a subcontractor? So I think every good partnership, there is compromise. I think it starts with understanding what are we good at in this instance and what do I need from that other third party or, or, or several third parties? And do we agree that the sum together is better than anything we can do on our own or faster than anything we can do on our own or cheaper or, or more appealing to the clients because not everybody wants everything from one vendor or one company? I think every partnership that we've done that's actually been successful and maintained has had compromise. And there are trade-offs every single time on both sides. And, you know, there's tons of litigation within the work, our organization of should we do it? Could we build it ourselves? Should we buy it? Could we do this? Why Which is partner? interesting because, again, you probably could. Not everybody wants to be sold, but we'd <laughs> at least like to think we could at times. And ultimately, there's reasons to partner because of maybe speed to market mm-hmm. or, or things they bring that maybe we don't. Sometimes outside innovation is faster than inside innovation. And I think we are realizing, listen, we've grown, obviously a hugely successful company in many ways, but to really achieve the bend in this trend of the spin that we need to do here, and especially in value-based care, it's not going to happen only within the walls of UHG. It's going to take us partnering, I think, with everyone in this room and folks not in this room to do it. And there's going to be all sorts of compromise, I think, in those to, to make it work. So what's really important that we've learned is you've, the only thing that works in this space because of, again, in the end, the only way to actually bend the cost curve is long-term management of patients, right? This is over years, is to create long-term partnerships. The thing that doesn't work is we're going to RFP this, treat you like a vendor, and every year we're going to spin this around yes. and take the lowest bidder. That's an utter right. waste of time. We, on the IRS side, refuse to answer RFPs because it's the wrong mindset. We're going to find a partnership. We signed 10-year partnership with Humana. 10-year not two, not three. Agilon signs 20-year partnership with medical groups, right? We now are the lowest number we would do with a five-year partnership, right? Because that's how long it takes if we're locked in together. So we had our first value-based contracts were these primary care cop contracts. And our first two were with a group called the Freelancers Union in New York Mm -hmm. and with the casino workers in Las Vegas. And it turns out we had no idea what we're doing. So what's the number, the right numbers? We picked a number, 
And we said, we're going to be pretty transparent about how we're doing on this. And we're going to pick up in six months and figure out, did we get it right? And we'll adjust it. And in the Las Vegas case, we picked a number that was too low. We were actually losing our shirts. And we negotiated it. And we got a higher rate. But in the freelancers union, we got picked a number that was way too high. We were making way too much money. And we said, no, in the long-term partnership, this won't work for us to be sort of screwing you over. So we're going to lower the rates and actually agree to get paid less. Mm. And in the long run, they were both exactly the right thing to do. What was that conversation like? We're going to, I just want to repeat what you just said, we're going to agree to get paid less. Yes, we're going to cut our rates. Because again, we were in this for the long term. And if this is not beneficial to both sides, this is not going to last for the long term. Right. So we said, we're going to, you know, and this is about building strong personal relationships. It's it's about an alignment of values. We're going to you know, and, and the nice thing about both these entities, which made it easier, is they had long-term clients, right? So these people, when there's an underlying churn, is why we, if you look at the employers we work with, the Boeing company, you know, uh, colleges, uh, state employees in Massachusetts, these people don't go anywhere. Lowe's Home Improvement, Home Depot are problematic. Mm-hmm. Because when their underlying employee base churns, this makes it very hard. We also have a podcast episode on that featuring one Daniel Kuzmanovich, if you wanted to listen. <laughs> I want to keep talking about this idea of partnership, and I want to talk about folks that we haven't mentioned. So, Rushika, you just quickly mentioned employers, and I actually think that they're an important one. But I want to think about the partners or potential partners who aren't represented on this stage. The first kind of blunt question I want to ask here is, is partnership possible with an organization that is much smaller. I'm talking about the health system that does not have the benefit of a health plan, the small medical group, the regional health plan. Is partnership possible there? And is there something that they can bring to the table, actually, for a larger organization that we're not thinking of that we need to make sure that we name? Absolutely. From my point of view, I've done a lot of that the last few years. I think their their focus is a lot more concentrated. And so that their ability to get things done and stay on point on that has been hugely valuable. And I think they usually have innovated something that is unique and differentiated and their ability to add that to maybe the rest of the scale and capital and market we can bring allows us to hopefully have a win-win partnership. And so I think we are always on the lookout for innovative, smaller companies or partners that maybe bring something new that maybe we could build or find elsewhere, but they're focused on it and their ability to customize it and, and just solve that for any of the type of provider, any type of payer is unique to their organization versus our organization where it's, it maybe is too hard to scale that, that low. Where is partnership actually the right default option, right? We talk a lot about ownership. I think the market has answered the question that the default option for ownership is the docs, right? That's why we're facing this, this huge arms race over physicians. That's why CVS paid $10.6 billion for Oak Street Health. Suddenly, one medical IOR is looking like a cheap deal here, right? At what, $4 billion? $4.6 Four, billion? Yeah. yeah. Is there an area where the asset, the capability, where you, you want to push organizations to actually think partnership first? We've done it exclusively on the ancillary side. We use the plan to win strategy on that. And if they're they're the best at something and it's better to partner and like-minded people bring them together and they're going to deliver the best that they can because they do it better and rather than us you know coming up and inventing lab services or something like that so that's been critical for us and it's been a good partnership and together we've been able to grow faster and scale better i wonder if this is also an area where 
life sciences can get involved, where mm-hmm. the digital health companies, the drug makers, the device makers can get involved, the folks that we don't necessarily think of as being intimately involved in the day-to-day of value-based care. But certainly, if we're thinking about the total cost of care, we have to be thinking about the drugs, the devices, the diagnostics, the things that we're ultimately sure. going to be using as clinicians or as patients. Where do you see them in the, this kind of partnership equation? So I think the two places where you need to partner, one is things that need to be done at scale, right? That you just can't get, again, United can do whatever they want, but in general, most of the rest of us, if things need to be done at huge scale, then you should be partnering. And then things that are sort of narrow, you know, you should not be doing yourself, right? So some rare diseases are a great example, which are very high cost, but it's ridiculous for you to build that capability up. So then partnering for people who know what they're doing and can spread that over multiple clients, that makes a lot of sense, right? So you've got to always keep asking the question, what is it we need to build ourselves because we need to control it or it's very common? And what are the things that just need to be done at scale or are very narrow and expensive? It starts a lot of, I think, like looking at yourself in the mirror as an organization and being honest. Mm. The number of times we talk to health plans or providers and they want to you know, sell a service or scale a service and maybe partner with, they might have an innovation idea. And yet the first question, are they good at it? Yeah. Are you actually good at what the part is you think you bring to the partnership or the part of the solution you're trying to do? And I don't know if everyone I'll, I'll, from past experience is always aware of what they truly are good at. Yeah. And, and then what do I need from a partner? And if you start from a place of inaccuracy, you're going to end up in failure. I think if, it, but so looking in that mirror and truly knowing what do I do well, and then what do I need a partner to do? Maybe your ancillary example of being that. I think is a key in some of these, you know, whether it's life science, the device companies, the drug manufacturers, if that's not something that's in your wheelhouse, then absolutely figuring out how they fit into this and bringing down TCOC is important. So we, we get this, when we talk to a lot of health systems to try to partner, we get this sort of, I think, a little bit of hubris. Either that we already do this. Yep. Like, oh, no, I get that. We, yeah, already we already do, do this. this and oh, and my like, God, no, you, crazy. no, you don't. Right. And then my favorite one is, oh, we could do this. That's right. And my rejoinder to that is, I could be an Olympic athlete, right? <laughs> that's, that's not a false statement. It's not a true statement. It's not a false. Like, no, I couldn't be an Olympic athlete. Yes, in theory, I could, right? So just saying, oh, we could do that. These things are really hard, and they require focus, and they require years to actually build these things. I mean, so we, it took us 11 years to go from when yeah. we started Iora to when we ended up getting to what we thought to be scale and, you know, getting things working. These things take a long time, so don't underestimate how hard it is to do some of these things and that somehow you can magically do it. And there's one other thing that makes us hard that we haven't talked about yet. So we've talked about ownership and the advantage that it gets you, but that it can't get you everything, right? We talked about the different players that you need to get involved in order to do that meaningful patient steerage. And Rashika, you started to go down this path a little bit when you talked about the culture, but there's this other problem of integration, which is actually getting all of your staff, all of your physicians, all of your assets moving in the same direction towards the same goal. And the industry has spent a lot of time and a lot of energy, frankly, advisory board has done a lot of research on <laughs> physician integration. But I want to I take a step back because I'm guessing that integration is a hell of a lot harder when you start adding more things. <laughs> and I don't think that any of you have actually figured this out yet. So my question is, when it comes to integration, moving in that same direction, what are some of the the barriers you come across and and how do you solve them? Rashika already said one of asking the question, right, and making sure that everyone has the same answer as to the why. 
what are some other kind of challenges that you're trying to overcome when it comes to this integration piece? There's three things that pop in my mind. I mean, data is number one of, one of the biggest ones. I mean, saying it, it doesn't surprise anyone in this room, but understanding how people ETL data, store data, process data, and assuming that their data is going to match ours, we bring them in and it can all of a sudden just work together is just yeah. a fallacy. And so I think we, some, it doesn't always show up in a synergy case or a partnership case, and then you get to the actual results and you realize you're in two different worlds. The second is the tools. There's always this assumption you're going to combine tools. And yet you end up with maybe multiple products for quite a long time, which keeps you on separate data, which keeps you on separate tools, which means you're probably not sharing the information. And then really, what is a good tool? Like even assessing, yeah. is our tool better? Is that tool better? Is this tool better? That process. And I, and I honestly think the third, which is important, and Rashika said earlier, is, is the culture. It's, the, it's change management is such an undervalued part of it that doesn't show up in a synergy case or an acquisition case or a CBA or a partnership case. You know, all the numbers are there. This is what we're going to go do, and this is how it's going to work. And then actually not having folks that are actual change management experts help drive that through the organization is often one of the last things we do, but probably one of the most important parts of doing it that I think continues to be an most important part of every partnership or acquisition we do. I'd put culture number one. I'd, I'd reverse your order. Yep. The data piece is if, if it's not all coming together, and what, the doctors are not going to go find it. They're right. not going to click out of one system and go into another system. Never. So it's a waste of time. So integration of your data is, is key so they can do the best and, and, and guide and direct. Yeah, you know, it came up in the word cloud, which I was intrigued. Trust. Trust is such an important thing. And it's very hard when you're combining organizations to make sure that you have trust and you need to get, get over the us and them thing, which is really hard. Especially organizations that may have been competitors, whether they're competing yeah. in the same <laughs> business lane or different business lane. I think in value-based care, it's really easy to just point fingers and go, that one has to figure it out. If only the payers would do this, if only the government would do that. It's very easy to point those fingers. And suddenly it becomes difficult when they're all working for the same organization. <laughs> I'm sure there was a moment in which you blamed Amazon for something yeah. like that. <laughs> now, Delivery. we're getting towards the end of our time, and I, I want to make sure that I end this conversation with a call to action. I do this on every radio advisory episode, and I'm cognizant of the fact that we have talked about a lot of stuff, and I don't want our audience or listeners to feel lost or to feel kind of helpless in what they do next in their value-based care journey. So I want to give each of you a moment to kind of speak directly to the health leaders who are listening to this. When it comes to value-based care, whether they're at the beginning of their journey or they're kind of drastically trying to hit the gas and accelerate things, what is the one thing that you want health leaders to do differently as a result of the conversation that we've had here today? One of the things we've worked hard on is redefining the word failure. I think historically it was it happened or it didn't happen. It was a success or it didn't. We weren't successful and therefore, we were judged in the merits of that. We either judged ourselves or we judged the provider or vice versa. And I think now we're switching to a mindset of what did we learn? And how do we experiment? How do we change? And how do we go try again in a different way, but with what we learned the last time? And how do you take those lessons and just continue to evolve our thinking and trying to figure it out and therefore teaching leadership that that's what this is about? It's about evolving, learning, and changing our story and trying to get towards success versus we got this many members in an ACO, or we got these results from an ACO and showed up in a PNL. It's almost a startup mindset in some ways, and trying to adopt that as we're trying to actually, in this industry, make change in value-based care 
It's one of the big things we, we're not done, but we have work to do is redefine failure and what it means in value-based care. Build a great network. I think, you know, the network is going to take you through and carry you through the day. If you have a great network, build something that you would use, that you're proud of, that you would literally, you know, send your parents to. The network is, is honestly going to be key, and your trust and your navigation and all of that then is you don't have to be frustrated or stress about, and you can, if you've got that high-performing network, it's easier to add things to. So focus, pause, get everything put together, and then build off your chassis. But it's a, it's a great ecosystem once you have it. So how do two things. One, one is a little bit, Rob, take the long view, right? This is, this is a long journey. It's not going to be quick. You know, I think you see so many people, the first six months aren't working, pull the plug on the whole thing. Like, no, you've got to keep going. I love this idea of not thinking it's a failure. And the second one is, I actually think value-based care is a red herring. It's actually the wrong framing for all of this. It's a means to an end, mm. right? And the end is we provide better care for consumers. And it allows us to do that. And so we just keep remembering that. That's what we're doing. It, so what value-based care allows us to do is double down on primary care. It's a little unfair. We go to the markets and we tell people, leave your doctor and come to us. But we're spending twice as much on the primary care as they are. And we have much nicer practices. And we spend more time with you. And we get a health coach. We send an Uber to pick you up. And, and it's unfair. But the value-based care allows us to do that, right? And in the end, that's what will change the market, is actually consumers voting with their feet. And that's why, by the way, people like Amazon and CVS are making huge investments in this sort of value-based care platform, because they see that. Absolutely. I love that. Well, thank you all for coming on Radio Advisory. My biggest takeaway from that episode is there's not one path to value-based care. In fact, the moment that's been ringing in my head over and over again is something that Rashika said at the very end there. Our goal isn't actually value-based care. Our goal is to make care better for patients. The path to get there is value-based payment. And I, for one, find that mindset shift incredibly liberating. And remember, as always, we're here to help. If you like Radio Advisory, please share it with your networks. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and a review. Radio Advisory is a production of Advisory Board. This episode was produced by me, Ray Woods, as well as Katie Anderson, Kristen Myers, Atticus Roche, and Eliza Daly. The episode was edited by Dan Tyag, with technical support by Chris Phelps and Joe Schramm. Additional support was provided by Carson Sisk, Leanne Elston, and Aaron Collins. Thanks for listening. I feel like you need some theme music going on. Yeah. <laughs> Are you asking me to sing? Jeopardy or something. <laughs>